Hello, I'm Alistair. I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 3 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk to TileDB. Let's do the news then. On the 9th of June 2021, one that I've missed. So hands up, I've missed this. I did see it and we, we skipped over it a few times. Everyone knows about the awesome Earth observation code, but awesome GEE community data sets. And this is an ability to load your data set into Google Earth Engine. I don't, I don't know how we managed to, to sort of let it go buyers, mm. but it's just um, a super slick way of getting your data into the catalog. The stuff that's coming alongside Earth Engine, as, as we've sort of alluded to in, in, in the past, it's just sort of phenomenal and blows my mind. But the idea of bringing the data sets together and then sort of standardizing them is, is fantastic. Can't say it enough. Links to code snippets on how to do this stuff is just the genius of Earth Engine. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, literally awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I'm on dad joke night tonight. For some reason. Okay, cool. So I'll pull it away from Google Earth Engine and into R. So this is a thread that Jakob Novosad had posted. So Jakob does a lot of development on R, and he's been looking at something about the concept of super pixels. It's a work in progress, but if you follow the links in the show notes, it'll basically take you through some of the results of what he's been doing. Uh, so he's got super pixels and super cells, and I'm not quite sure what the difference is between the two, um, but I should probably know that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's just an interesting thing. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about Google Earth Engine and Python libraries. And I think there's some really exciting work going on in R as well, but maybe because we're not sort of in that academic sphere where I guess a majority of the R users sit. Uh, we don't seem to come across it as much, but yeah, it's, I, I was really impressed with this. And in fact, all of the work that Jakob's doing, it's some really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of this, this is a little bit more than image segmentation, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. But obviously the first step is image segmentation. It reminds me a little bit of e-cognition. Yeah. Segmentation is, is such an interesting thing in image processing. It kind of hasn't quite got there yet. It's super fascinating. Yeah. So something I've been interested in is trying to segment and extract field boundaries, particularly in the UK, where fields are delineated by hedgerows. And so that hedgerow has a width of its own. And it's really interesting how, as a human who understands the context of what they're looking at, you know that a hedgerow has a certain width, and therefore the field boundary shouldn't really go at the middle of the hedgerow. It needs to go on either side. And the hedgerow needs to be its own sort of a class within the, the thing that you're, you're trying to extract. And yet, whenever you're looking at data, almost every single algorithm that I've seen uh, trying to, to do this, it just cannot, it, it just puts the hedgerow in one field or the other, or it just messes it up completely and puts a, a line going through the middle of the field and includes the hedgerow in some weird polygon. So yeah, th this whole area I find really fascinating and how we as humans know exactly what we want and we're still struggling to define in data terms how to uh, process that and, and extract the thing that we want. I would agree with that 100% and the modeling of linear features is very poorly handled. 
still today. I, I am basically referring to optical imagery here. But things like shadow and stuff are a problem on hedgerows as well because of the height of the hedgerow. And then the hedgerow can be different dimensions depending on what season it's in and, and whether it's been cut or whether there's a tree in the middle of it or yes. all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, okay, cool. So I, I, I'm sort of, again, going to mention Earth Engine. I mean, it's sort of my go-to thing uh, at the moment, it, it, it seems... I should, I guess, mention awesome Earth Engine apps because I'm going to start talking about apps. Please let me know one that you've been blown away with. Like the sharing of the code, the sharing of an app, and now you can embed apps and stuff into your web pages and all this kind of stuff. It's like, what is going on? It's really amazing. I came across this SAR Watcher. So I was going to make a funny comment saying that there's 72 NDVI-based apps that are listed in the awesome list. Don't do it. <laughs> then, but then if you look at how many overall, so there must be hundreds of actual apps. So 72 is, is relatively small in the overall scheme of things. But some of, the, some of these NDVI ones are actually quite good. I mean... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I wanted to shout out about SAR Watcher as well. Uh, Juan Doblas, hopefully I've pronounced your name correctly. And he's built the SAR Watcher uh, Earth Engine app. When I saw it, I was like, what? <laughs> this is amazing. The, the example that it sort of by default loads or he, he had was like just fascinating to me just at, just out the box, which was uh, in Brazil. But you can you can basically navigate anywhere in the world and, and, and run this uh and it's just it's just phenomenal and, and he's got different filters once you've picked an area of interest on the map you can then trace around interesting geometries and export them out of the thing it's a brilliant way of getting people into SAR data which is a complex data structure yeah it's really good isn't it i just feel like there's a lot of thought that's gone into this yeah and you can tell that because he hasn't overwhelmed it i love it someone's going to have to do an awesome list of awesome things unless that already exists i bet it does are you in SAR Watcher now? Have you got it yep. loaded? Yeah. So at the bottom <laughs> left in the main window, there's a points of interest. So if you click on that, you should yep. be able to scroll to the bottom and it's Suez Canal. Yeah. It's an amazing image. And right, I know I've been working with Earth observation data since God knows when. And that these sorts of things shouldn't get me as excited as they do. But this, this is just brilliant. So basically, because of the fact that the ships have been moving around, they're all in different colours. <laughs> There's this really cool track right the way through the Suez Canal that's multicoloured. And then on either side of the canal, it's just a beautiful SAR image anyway of what's there. Either I'm easily excited by Earth observation, or it just goes to show how brilliant Earth observation is that 20 plus years into a career, you can still be excited by amazing data and some of the stuff that people are doing with it okay so last thing for me is a blog post from Dave Fowl but it's an introductory post and sort of sets the context I'd say for earth observation satellite data on a planetary scale and you know try not to say oh we just you know we just sprinkle the AI on it or or anything like that to not overhype it it's so difficult and we're just not very good at, at kind of even working with data on this scale, trying to maintain these sort of global data sets, let alone you know, running complex algorithms and, and AI, it's a big challenge and hopefully useful series for us to keep an eye on. Okay, well, because it's our podcast and I can do this, uh, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and say that the final bit of news from me is that I've got a new job. So um, I'm currently 
moving from Jogger into Spark Geo. So I'm going to lead Spark Geo in the UK and we'll be able to bring some of the full stack geospatial development goodness that Spark Geo has been delivering over in the North American time zones into the UK and European time zones. I'm really excited because even though I've said on this podcast before that I love working as an independent, I am also really looking forward to being able to work with a really great team at Spark Geo and just basically have conversations about some of the stuff that we have conversations, you and I have conversations of on the podcast. Spark Geo are going to be better for, for someone like yourself coming on board and um, fantastic. Thank and you. it just sort of goes to show what you can do. The things that you've achieved, Alistair, you should, you should never underestimate and you should feel immensely proud and not giving up on being independent. I'm sure it's just you know, the next chapter in, in your working career. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hope to, to um, continue to give back as much as I can. I still want to be all about collaboration, just as I was before. So it's going to be an exciting time. And that's it for the news. This is an exciting episode for me as we're speaking with Stavros and Norman from TileDB. I first came across TileDB when I was doing some research work for a client about storage methods for spatial data. I'd not seen TileDB before, but once I started reading around it, I thought that this was something we should share with you guys on the podcast. Um, so maybe we can start off with some quick introductions. Uh, Stavros, do you want to just quickly say who you are? Yes, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. My name is Stavros. I'm the founder and CEO of uh, TileDB. I'm a computer scientist uh, by training. I, I spent quite uh, some time in academia. I did my PhD, then I became a professor. Um, and in 2014, I moved to Intel Labs and MIT, where I spent three years. I built the TileDB research prototype that I'm going to talk about today. And in 2017, I started the TileDB company. And after th uh, four years, um, we grew the team to 35 people. We have some amazing customers and partners. We have some healthy capital that we raised and we grow by the day. We, we can't wait to, to tell you more about it. Excellent. Cool. And Norman, maybe you can introduce yourself as well. I'm Norman Barker. I'm the DPAJ Spatial Head at TileDB. I've been working with Stavros for just over two years now. And prior to that, I worked for the weather company, um, Mapbox, um, and the company behind Envy. That's brilliant. Thank you, both of you. So I guess number one question, what is TileDB? Yeah, that, that's a great question. We have a very <laughs> audacious vision, as you can imagine, because we, we call ourselves a, a universal database which sounds quite bold. Um, <laughs> this, this effect, so let me, let me elaborate a little bit and, uh, and shed some light to this. What we are trying to do is to store um, more than tables, right? More than key values. Things that you see in, in traditional databases because we see a huge opportunity in so many different scientific applications. Our hypothesis was, can we store all data, any kind of data in a single system and then, you know, put all the database features that you find in traditional databases around this common unified way of storing data and make this very accessible with any tool and then add scalability and add many other features. So this is what we call a universal database. Um, the secret source is a, a, a data structure called multidimensional arrays. And it comes in two flavors, dense and sparse. And TileDB is the only system that can store the data as multidimensional arrays in, in both a dense and sparse format. These are quite different, but we, we unified them. And that allowed us to model any data, like from raster and video 
to point cloud and genomics and even tables, of course, in a single way. And everything else is built on top. So, um, and, and there are two offerings. There is an open source offering, TalDB Embedded. That's a storage engine. It has a lot of nice features. It's built in C++. It comes with a lot of APIs. It's cloud native, right? So it has a lot of very, very nice features. And the commercial product is called TalDB Cloud. And this is what adds data governance, uh, global scale collaboration and sharing. It, it allows data vendors to come store the data in the cloud buckets and offer their data to, to, to a global audience through TalDB Cloud, all serverless. And this is the gist of what TalDB is. Could you just say quickly what the difference is between a sparse array and a, a dense array? So a dense array is uh, an array where every element, every cell identified by, by the indices of the, of the dimensions of, of the array, um, every cell has a value, even if it is empty. You need to put null or zero. You need to put something. Take an image. An image is a two-dimensional array where every cell is a pixel and you store, I don't know, RGB or and whatever other information you may want. That's a dense array. Video is a dense array as well. And there are so many other examples of dense arrays. In a sparse array, the majority of the cells are empty or the domains are infinite. Take, for example, LiDAR. The dimensions are floats, right? And therefore, they're infinite. And the points of interest, they're just some, you know, some, some non-empty cells, but, but the majority of the, of the space is empty. That can be represented as a sparse array. And there are many other examples in genomics, even tables, you can represent them as sparse multidimensional arrays. Do they work together? At lunchtime, I was fortunate enough to um, watch Norman's video from the Radiant Earth Foundation talk. My overriding question was like, how does this differ from X-ray data set, for example, and then you started to introduce the sort of the PDAL and all, all this other kind of stuff. Can I have like a mishmash of data or do they have to sit separately to each other? Because I'm really interested in the spatial domain. Yeah, a dense array would be a separate, uh, let's say object than a sparse array. However, let's say probably 90% of the code is the same. And, and, and that's the whole thesis of TalDB. Like we, we identify that when you're building the software stack to, to serve genomics versus sonar, 90% of it is the same. And the, you know, the jargon changes, the APIs change. That was a big observation back, back when I was uh, at Intel and MIT, right? The same goes for dense and sparse arrays. When I built TalDB, I built it first as a sparse array system because there was HDF5 at the time, right? It, yeah. it was a research project. The, 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 the premise there was, can we build a very efficient sparse array system? That's what I was trying to do at the time. I, I was trying to do sparse linear algebra on high performance computing systems. That's what I wanted to do at the time, right? And I couldn't store the data anywhere. But then, uh, you know, the question was, okay, man, you, you, you built this, this sparse array system can't you just add dense? Like the reviewers were asking us, hey, I mean, you built the sparse array system. Can't you accommodate dense? And then I, I checked the code and I tried to refactor it. And I, I saw that 90% of it is the same, like the way we compress, the, the way we, we do the, the, the filter pipelines on, on, on the chunks, which we call tiles. Um, anything around uh, the, the cloud backends. I mean, the cloud backends, we, we have abstracted them by creating a virtual file system, you know, with commands like ls, read, write, yeah, yeah, open, yeah. you know, stuff like that. 
but that's common whether it is a dense array or a sparse array or in, in the same, you know, an image or a video or genomics or LIDAR and, and so on and so forth. So it's really fascinating that you started looking at sparse and then moving to the, to the dense arrays because I, I, I would almost bank my life that you'd have gone the other way. Yeah, there were there were a lot of brilliant systems in, in the dense case, right? And again, at the time, my intention was not to get rid of all the formats. I was just trying to create a database. So in, in, the, in the databases, if you check all the databases, they don't evangelize their formats. <laughs> the, the, you know, some good databases have proprietary formats, but our intention is not to pitch a format to you. We're not telling you, yes, get rid of all the other formats and make the TalDB format a standard. What, what we're telling you is you can work with array semantics, just the array semantics, and you can define APIs on those array semantics that can, can unify your domain, and they can unify the genomics domain, and they can unify even, even the database domain. The database domain is more structured today, but it can unify all of those domains. We're not telling you use the TalDB format. We're saying TalDB, the TalDB format is great, but use the APIs. That's what we're telling you. Who is currently using TalDB and who are you hoping that will start using it? <laughs> I mean, we're not in stealth as a company, but we are in, in a stealth mode with, with a lot of the customers that we have. Uh, I'll tell you the, the domains. So we're doing tons of work in genomics okay. with both genomics companies as well as hospitals. Um, we're doing a lot of work with telecommunications companies, LIDAR and user movements and uh, stuff like that. We're doing a lot of work with weather and raster data cool. for okay. uh, various different companies. Um, you're going to see very soon uh, several partnerships uh, to, to be announced around SAR data as well as AIS data. So, and, and on the open source side, we have uh, tons of inbound requests that, you know, they're, they're sharing their use cases with, with us. It can be all over the place from finance, it could be from pharmaceuticals, it could be truly from autonomous vehicles, it could be from anywhere. It sort of blows me away that, you know, you're so cross-domain. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, amazing, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah. But you're almost saying here, perhaps you are saying that it doesn't, we don't care what we can sort of take the data or we can work with anything really. Um, and that, that, that's quite a step change, it seems to me. Nothing happened overnight. Okay, again, I told you what, what I tried to, to work on at the time. And then more and more use cases in, in the ecosystems that uh, I was participating uh, were, were being brought up, right? What we're trying to prove is that data management is data management. It doesn't matter what domain it, uh, you're working on. Mm. The, the things that change, and I'll tell you a challenge that we had in the way we were tackling it, uh, is this the jargon changes significantly. You need to speak the language of the scientist that you're working with in geospatial or in genomics or in uh, biomedical imaging because it's different. Also, the formats are different, right? The formats. The model is the same. It's an array. The biomedical image is an array in the same way that the SAR image is, is, is an array as well. It's the same, right? But the jargon changes. And the only way for us to tackle this is first to get experts like Norman, for example, geospatial expert, right? Or other people in genomics and the other verticals and deeply understand the domain. And this is a very big difference between our company and any other standard data management company that focuses on SQL. We, we don't care what API you're using. We care about the actual use case and how to give you performance and ease of use. So that's why we really don't care. And now we are at a stage where we have the resources to prove it across the board. When we started, we were focusing on genomics. 
but now we, we, we have the resources to expand. Sort of quite uniquely placed in that sense, aren't you? I'm often envious of, you know, medical imaging and trying to learn from from them applying techniques of image processing and stuff like that to, to satellite data and it's it's difficult because for like jargon just as you just as you described so do you, do you see that something that you might get involved in and kind of not just hosting or holding the data but also processing the data the way we build TalDB cloud is completely extendable right instead of optimizing sql which we could have done, but it would take a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of time. Instead of saying that, we said, no, no, no. We're going to build the infrastructure so that anybody can build distributed scalable algorithms. And that's what we did with TalDB Cloud and the serverless architecture and all our task graphs and all of that. Instead of focusing on one of, of the verticals and say, okay, we're going to take this and we're going to optimize it and then we're going to go compete with Snowflake, something like that. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. said, no, 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 this is not what the users want. I mean, if they want only SQL, they're going to go to Snowflake or to, to another established SQL player. What, what our users want is SQL plus something else. It's never just SQL. It's SQL plus machine learning plus much processing plus anything. So what we're telling them is you can create the code or we, we can help you create the code. We do that sometimes. I don't know, uh, digital twins on LiDAR, we do that. Uh, biomedical processing, as you say, we do the machine learning, we do that. Then we show them how to build those algorithms. And this is how we scale the usability of TalDB. If, if we try to do everything in-house, it's not going to scale. Yeah. But if yeah. we Give, give the infrastructure to, pe yeah. to people to yeah. crowdsource essentially this, it will scale. Maybe we can uh, bring Norman in here then. My first question to you, Norman, is why would an Earth observation specialist want to use uh, TileDB over something they might already be using? I'm, I'm an Earth observation specialist. Uh, I've been doing it for 20 years. And I think the main reason for me is the multidimensional support that you just can't get with other, with other capabilities. Um, you know, we look at COGS, for example. I was involved in COGS. I did WebKey to COGS and... I'm not working at TileDB because TileDB supports my needs better. Okay. Um, I need to be able to do. I need to be able to do slicing. I need to be able to slice on the time range. I need to be able to use data science tools. I need management around that data. I just don't get that with things like Cogs. Does TileDB basically handle all types of geodata, or is it, or you know, the majority that people would be familiar with? It handles all types of data. You know, in, in particular things like hyperspectral. When you think about hyperspectral data, it's many, many bands, and it's in a cube, and it's very difficult to process. That's just a natural fit for TileDB. You know, as our sparse data, we're doing above ground and below ground, you know, we're doing LIDAR and SONAR. We can do all different data types. So you mentioned a cube, even though it, it's not an open data cube, but that does bring me on to the open data cube. And <laughs> do TileDB and the open data cube sort of complement each other or are they in competition? Or where are you trying to sit within that use case of vast amounts of data? So the, the model within the open data cube fits TileDB exactly. Um, you know, we can... We can power, power the open data cube just in the same way that we could go and power Postgres, for example. It just depends on how you want to use it, what ecosystem you want to deploy in. Using TileDB Cloud will give you the scalability at a global scale that you need that perhaps you wouldn't get with Postgres or open data cube, but you, you, you can, we can power that. On the um, Capella dem demo that you had at the Radiant Earth Foundation, was that pre-processed SAR data? You had ended up with like an animation and everything. It was pretty quick. I mean, I know it's a sort of sm small area, but did it, did, was pre-processing going on in the background or was it pre-cooked, as it were? Uh, no, <laughs> it wasn't pre-cooked. Uh, so in that moment, that demo, you know, um, we attracted an area of interest and then we queried over time and we stacked it together and then we created an animation. 
Uh, that was done or could have been done on the flight. It would have taken about a minute to do it. Right. It's retrieving the data directly from cloud storage. We're running the code against the data. We're moving the code to the data exactly. Um, in terms of improving that method, the one I showed you, it was it was a little bit crude, wasn't it? It was nice and tight. Well, um, once it was crude, I mean, it was pretty effective, I thought. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's the issue then, well, not the issue, getting it out of the cloud, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you don't want to be paying for the egress. You want to be running the code against the data. Right, okay. And um, I mean, is that is that a model that you think, I mean, this is a, probably a particularly unfair question to ask, but is that a model that you think suppliers would move towards? We're recommending to people that they store their data in the rawest format possible for these satellite providers. And then they create their level two, level three products on the fly using our use of divine functions in Cloud to be Cloud. If you can efficiently slice a region and you can slice over time, there's no reason to pre-prepare these products, you can just create them on the fly. And, and then I guess you could just do it again. Do it again and again, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, yeah, okay, fantastic. And Andrew, I would like to, to add that this is exactly how Talibi Cloud works today. A vendor brings their data. The data uh, gets into the Talibi format. The COGS, for example, stacked as 3D cubes, right? Uh, yep, across yep. time. And then um, you get whitelisted by the vendor. But then, uh, then you can do it either way. You can go to the vendor and say, I'm going to pay for, for the, whole, the whole data set and just give me access to Talibi Cloud. Or you do it pay as you go and you pay just for the slice. We have that yeah. already. This marketplace feature is already live on TileDB. As a naive user, how would I go about implementing TileDB if I wanted to get it up and running sort of next week? Not saying I do want to get it up and running next week, but you know, I might do. <laughs> well, I'd certainly recommend that you first signed up to TileDB Cloud because you know, we've done all that for you. Okay, cool. Yeah. But if you, if you wanted to do that, you could use uh, TileDB Embedded locally, perhaps. Um, but I think the key thing here is that we allow you to ingest that data in parallel, whereas with a COG, you'd have to have many, many intermediate results. Um, whereas with a tile to be array, you can just go and spin up a hundred instances if you want to and write the same array. There's not a problem. Right. Um, so ingesting like these huge data sets, you know, it used to take weeks. You can now do it. But I wouldn't say hours. Yeah. Yeah. And are Jupyter Notebooks the main way that people interact with TileDB, or does it, you know, do they just write scripts that they they run the api on or is it totally up to them as to how they uh, interact yeah there are there are multiple ways to do that the easiest is to spin up a jupyter notebook within TileDB cloud um, just because it's it's very inexpensive and you can experiment there it runs in the ec2 instance next to your data so you know you're going to avoid a lot of costs but everything that happens in TileDB Cloud, everything from billing to seeing who has access to your data, everything is done programmatically. There's an open API for pretty much everything that you see there. Okay. And of course, the TileDB embedded client, which is the open source client, just works. Like if you if you change, you know, the, the array name from, I don't know, S3 colon slash slash my bucket, my array to TileDB colon slash slash, and then the, the bucket and array name, then the whole code is, is just going to work. I, I think you've sort of already answered this in the way that you've described TileDB, but um, just for clarity, if I was doing a, a project where I was using both vector data and raster data, can I move my vector data into TileDB and my raster data and basically do all of my processing in one place? Is that how it works? Yes, you could. And make all your processing a lot more lightweight. I think we are seeing a bit of a trend in the industry away from like 
as much as I love GDAL, away from using GDAL and away from using PostGIS and using some more of these lighterweight tools. Yeah. And that's where TileDB really comes in. Well, what is next then for you guys? You've done a lot of things. Remind me again, how long you've been going? Four years, but, uh, you know... The... Four years, okay. So do you, do you Four years as a company, or... right? Three years to build a prototype. We, we started scaling only, only recently. So we're doing a lot of time series stuff, right? And it can go from COGS to NetCDF. Right, a lot of um, different uh, um, Earth observation data that uh, uh, that we want to unify, e- e- even in the more challenging time series setting. Um, a lot of work on digital twins registration and matching for uh, for point cloud, and as I mentioned before, a lot of stuff on the algorithmic side as well. We have a lot of great partnerships coming up to make point cloud data as well as SAR data available on TalDB Cloud, and you're going to see this very very soon. Uh, and finally, we are experimenting a lot with monetization right uh, with the data vendors of course that are bringing their proprietary data sets on TalDB Cloud and they want to make them available to the users but with any user really and monetization goes on both data and code you can write code on TalDB register it as user defined function and monetize it if you like that's been absolutely brilliant. I feel like I should have been asking really tough technical questions, but I've just been blown away by what you're doing. And it's like, this is awesome. So um, yeah, thank you so much, Norman and Stavros, for coming on the podcast and telling us about TileDB. And best of luck, because I'm definitely going to go and uh, check it out and, and look at it in a bit more detail. Thank you, folks. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Cheers. Did anybody say anything funny? music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.